0: If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org.
1: After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Jesus said, They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. It's
0: great to be with you. Am I on? Am I coming through? Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, I'm not even sure if I know my Enneagram type, but uh, (laughs) we'll, uh, we'll have a go. It's fantastic to be here with you. Uh, I've got another friend who leads a church about an hour outside St. Louis, and he says, uh, if you come in January, it's going to be colder than a legalist's heart. <laughs> but uh, he said, our Midwest gospel warmth will heat you up. And uh, honestly, we, we feel that being with you. It's such a privilege to be walking with, with friends uh, who have a similar heart, similar vision of church, and uh, to come and minister in the middle of your fast. Um, it's just such a privilege because there really is a sense of spiritual heat uh, here. I want to apologise up front for uh, preaching out of a text that's all about bread and fish in the middle of your fast. That's unfair, but I'm, I'm under orders to do that. So I'm going to do it and then go and have lunch afterwards, yeah? Um, <laughs> you know, when I read the story or hear the story of the feeding of the 5,000 read again, it just conjures up memories of my Methodist church Sunday school hall back in Durban, South Africa, where I grew up with my wife. And uh, I can still picture the room dividers and the flannel graph pictures up on the room dividers of loaves and fish and people. And I can still smell the salt and flour of the Play-Doh and I can still hear my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Robbins, ask, what would you do if Jesus asked you for your lunch? And many of us who've been around the Bible, or even if we haven't, we've heard one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, this multiplication of five loaves and two fish from a boy uh, to feed 5,000 men. The Clever people say, men, women, and children, About 20,000 people, amazing multiplying miracle. And not only were they fed to their fill, they uh, carried away 12 baskets full of fragmented leftovers. An amazing miracle. And what does that have to teach us about praying dangerous prayers? Because you are in a series on praying dangerous prayers. Not my will, but yours be done. Here I am, send me, and today break me. We have to learn about praying the dangerous prayer, break me, from this passage. Uh, As I said, I grew up in Durban, South Africa, part of a Christian home, and uh, came to faith in Jesus around 13 years old, but really wrestled with friends and alcohol and girls and partying and what it was to work out my faith. Uh, in these things that I, I enjoyed, even as a young teenager. And I remember as about a 16-year-old being in this massive big uh, tent at the German club in Westville and uh, having this warm German beer in my hand as a 16-year-old and listening to bad Irish music. I think the band was called the Blarney Brothers. And uh, everyone was having a party. And in the middle of it, I just felt this gnawing emptiness. And I walked outside, I lay down on the field, looking up at the sky and prayed something like, God, I feel empty and I miss you. And, and Jesus met me that night very powerfully, so powerfully that I went home and shared with my mom that Jesus met me in the middle of this party and, and she with a twinkle in her eye said, you know, I've always prayed that you would feel empty in your sin. I'm not sure if I even like that, but uh, that that sure was a, a dangerous prayer. A dangerous prayer that that God answered. How many of you have been saved or just moved forward in your relationship with God because of the dangerous prayers of your mom? Yeah, nothing like a mom who prays or your dad or a friend or a grandparent, the dangerous prayers. And what is it for us to pray dangerous prayers? What what do we have to learn from this passage about dangerous dangerous prayer? I, I think the first thing is that if we're gonna pray dangerous prayers, we're gonna have to be persuaded that Jesus is really good. Because if we're not, dangerous prayers like break me we will fear that they will ruin us rather than fill us. And I just want to catch a glimpse of how good Jesus is in this passage. Not just good in terms of being sinless and that He was, but good in terms of being compassionate, caring, selfless, lavishly generous. And the passage begins with these two words, after this. And we should ask, well, after what? And I just wanna say after proverbially a week from hell. Jesus in the previous chapter had been on the run from the scribes and the Pharisees who were trying to kill him because he'd healed on the Sabbath and because he claimed that God was his father. And so he was in danger He was also so busy with teaching and healing the sick that He'd said to His disciples, you don't even have time to eat. So He was hungry, they were hungry, they were exhausted. And He'd also heard in the chapter before that His cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. So He was in danger, He was hungry, He was exhausted and He was grieving, not a great week. Pretty rough week. And so he says to his disciples, come away with me to a desolate place and rest a while. They take a boat across the Sea of Galilee. They climb a mountain. They sit down. They're gonna have a three-day getaway. And as they're sitting down to rest and refresh and grieve and recuperate, these crowds come walking up the mountain. I would have been incredibly grumpy. It seems like the disciples were. Jesus, in the middle of His lack of food, of energy, of joy, just is incredibly caring and incredibly gracious. And He says these words, where are we going to get food for these people to eat? Where are we? Those are big words. The omnipotent God, including His disciples in this catering miracle. And says he, he said this to test them because he knew what he would do. There, there's a gleam in his eye because he knows what's going to happen. But actually, any of us would have just gone, uh, 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 man, my week has been so rough. It's time for me and my friends to chill out and replenish. You know, Jesus' heart is always to pick up the tab. And in In this moment, He doesn't heal, He doesn't teach. He actually takes care of their material needs. And that's a theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus' very first miracle was turning water to wine. It wasn't His wedding. He wasn't responsible, but His heart is just to pick up the tab. When His disciples can't pay their taxes, He says, let's go fishing, and they catch a fish with a coin in it and pay their taxes, his heart is to pick up the tab. Even after he was risen from the dead, he he provides a fish barbecue on the beach for his his friends. And here, his compassion and generosity takes on this crowd, 20,000 people that the disciples kind of do their math and say, even 200 denarii, which is about six months worth of salary, would not feed them. You see, many of us are generous out of our abundance. If we've got an abundance of time, of energy, of finance, but Jesus was generous out of His lack. We know from the Gospels, He never lived large. He relied on others. He, he was a homeless man. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He, he, was, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He died a criminal porpoise. death. here we see this was a... Homeless caterer, a man whose heart was as big as a hotel to take care of people even in his own lack. And if we contrast the goodness of Jesus with the apathy and even the grumpiness of of Andrew and the disciples, even 200, even six months wages, there's just no ways let them find food for themselves. And then Andrew goes and finds this boy with five loaves and two fishes. It's, it's always easy to be generous with someone else's stuff, right? Someone asks you, hey, will you help me move? And it's like, no, 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 I can't. But Brian's got a truck, ask him. You know, It's, it's, it's that vibe. Uh, there's this boy. Don't ask us, Lord, but there's this boy. And there's this moment we know where Jesus takes the fish and the loaves. He gives thanks for them. He breaks them, and then this amazing catering miracle. And then we see that He's so good, not just in caring, not just in multiplying, but He's in the details. It says, He made them sit down in groups of 50s and 100s since there was grass. In other words, He cared about their hunger. He cared about their comfort. He cared about their community. It was In circles, circles are better than rows. It doesn't just chuck bread from the stage. You know, Jesus is better than we can imagine. And that's why we can pray these dangerous prayers like break me, because when we see the goodness of his character, we say, when I pray break me, it's not gonna be for my ruin, it's gonna be for my life. I can trust you. You ask, what is the essence of the character of God? The Bible would say that He is good. There was a, a man who prayed a dangerous prayer in Exodus 33, Moses, who said, God, show me your ways, show me your glory, show me your presence. He's just, he's just desperate, he's praying a dangerous prayer. And God says to him, you cannot see my face and live. And in other words, I'm so good, I'm, I'm holy, I'm sinless. But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then he says, And I will cause my goodness to pass before you. The essence of the character of God is he is good. You take his ways and his glory and his presence and his holiness and you distill it down, and what do you get? My goodness. I love the Narnia tales, they describe this so well. Any of uh, you kind of Narnia tales fans out there, C.S. Lewis, one of my favourite writers, and he does this allegory to describe the character of God. And, and, and there's this lion called Aslan, who's like a Christ figure. And there's this brother and sister called Lucy and Edmund who are trying to learn what it is to trust Aslan and to follow him in the land of Narnia. And they're pretty intimidated by him because he's a lion. And in the one chapter, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Jesus is not safe, but he is exceedingly good. Better than we can imagine. And that's why we can pray dangerous prayers. Second thing that we see is that Jesus is not just good, but He is demanding. He is demanding. He's more demanding than we would expect. Where are we going to get bread to feed these people? And as we know, Philip is saying, man, there's just no ways that we've got enough money. And so they find this boy. And I have to say, although I love this story, I've written a book about the story, I've got questions that are unanswered questions about this little boy. The first is, were the loaves and the fish willingly given or were they taken? Because John just says, he took the loaves. Now, we know Jesus is good, so we know he's not like a playground bully. But I don't think that, well, I don't know whether this boy was really willing. Was there kind of this tug of war? I grew up like carrying my cheese and chutney sandwiches to school. And I always looked forward to kind of a sandwich swap because my buddy would always have like tuna fish or ham and cheese better than my cheese and chutney. Do you even know what chutney is? It's kind of like a spicy marmalade jam kind of stuff. It, it wasn't great. and. <laughs> And I would always swap for something better. Well, this wasn't a sandwich swap. This was a sandwich takeover for the sake of others. And it just says Jesus took them and gave thanks for them. He seemed okay to leave this boy hungry for the sake of others. It's pretty demanding, isn't it? I've also got the question, why a boy? Why not a grown man or a woman who could have given and then gone and worked or gone and ploughed a field and, reaped and replenished what they'd given. This boy had no resources of his own. It seems a little demanding. My biggest question is, why the whole jolly lunch? If, if Jesus was so powerful to be able to take five loaves and two fishes and feed 20,000 people, why not just two loaves and one fish, a kind of a McDonald's fish filet? You know, perfect. Why the whole lunch? Why was He willing to invade this little boy's margins and leave him empty-handed and hungry for the sake of others. I don't know exactly why, except that he did it. And we've got to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is exceedingly good. He's generous and he's gracious and he's also quite demanding. And what we have to learn from this is that very often we are very happy for Jesus to bless us but we're not as happy for Jesus to take and break what He's blessed us with. And yet this miracle would not have happened if a little boy was not willing to say, take it and break it. Many of us want blessing. Not all of us want breaking. And yet the miracle is in the taking and the breaking. You know, you're never too young to be part of Jesus' feeding scheme, never too young. We had about a year ago a young college student, a lady called Emma Lever, who grew up as a missionary kid in Qatar in the United Arab Emirates, come to me about probably 18 months ago and she just said, Man, I'm a volunteer in children's ministry but I've got a real heart. In fact, I'm studying, I've spent years learning about what it is to reach the special needs community. Do you know that there's only one church in our whole city that really has access to the special needs community? Would you be open to me leading an all access ministry to the special needs community? And I just knew in that moment, if I said yes, our nice little children's ministry would be ruined but actually what we did, we began to put our bread in Jesus' hands. And last Easter Sunday was the very first Sunday where a family with a special needs child came because we had access now with ramps and we're getting an elevator and we had people trained. And then Emma started doing respite days for families and caregivers of those with special needs and Now we've got 10 families in the church who come regularly with special needs kids who didn't have access before to the gospel being preached live and worshiped live. And I just go, actually, you're never too young to be involved in Jesus' catering miracle, are you? It's an amazing thing. But first, it requires that we get over ourselves. What Jesus is doing is he's calling this boy out of the smallness and the safeness of his little lunchbox and saying, come into my catering miracle. David Brooks, New York Times columnist who's recently actually come to Christ, writes in his book, The Second Mountain, that joy tends to involve some transcendence of self. It's when the skin barrier between you and some other person or entity fades away and you feel fused together. He says, joy is present when mother and baby are gazing adoringly into each other's eyes. When a hiker is overwhelmed by beauty in the woods and feels at one with nature. When a gaggle of friends are dancing deliriously in unison. Listen here, joy often involves self-forgetting. Our culture tells us self-realisation Self confidence, self actualization. Our culture hasn't taught us self denial. But actually, there's incredible joy even when we've been left feeling empty and hungry when we are involved in what only Jesus can do because we put our bread in his hands. I don't know about you, but I like margins. How about you? I like margins of money, I like margins. Of time, I like margins of rest. I like margins of my home as a sanctuary. I like margins of kind of a schedule that I can kind of plan well. But there've been moments when Jesus has said, can I have access to your margins, those things that you love? Because I wanna feed others through those. One of the ways that we've tried to give Jesus access to our margins is through our home. Very often our our home is our our castle, but actually Jesus calls us to see our homes as embassies for His kingdom. Wants to use our homes. And as our kids have grown up, teenage years, my son now in college playing football, one of the things that we've said is, tell your friends that our home is their home, that they have access, that they, that they can come if they're in trouble, they can come if they're hungry. Do you know when you have got footballers, 300, 250 pound footballers on a, you know, 4,000 calorie a day allowance? That's an expensive invitation. And it's been pretty disruptive because sometimes they've arrived in the middle of dinner asking for prayer because of some crisis in their lives. But actually we've found that our lives have been larger because we've given Jesus access to our margins. What is that thing that you can say, well, Lord, take this, take this, take this, but don't take this and don't break this. This is Gollum, my precious. (laughs) And what happens when we do that, whether it's our money, whether it's our time, our relationships, our family, our home, what happens is it's like the little child with the chocolate The more you hold onto it, the less you've got of it. It melts in your hand. But actually, when we give it to Jesus, it's truly ours because we know it doesn't own us. Third thing we see about praying dangerous prayers is that we can take courage that when we give something to Jesus, He's able to restore it back abundantly because He's not just a multiplier, He is an abundant restorer but he also changes the form of it liberally. So verse 12, when they'd eaten their fill, Jesus doesn't just provide a little bit. They they couldn't have another bite. And I'm pretty sure the boy was included in that. But then he says, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing but may be lost. There's not just a fullness, there's an abundant leftover, 12 baskets full of Fragments, whatever Jesus is calling you to put in His hands, know this, He can restore it to you. He can restore it to you. He's not out to rob you. He's out to fill you. But when He restores it to you, it will be in, can you say that word with me? Fragments. Can you say that word with me? Fragments. That's a real key. Because I think very often if we, Put our money in Jesus' hands, we're expecting that exact same amount. Or if we put our friendships or our time or or our home or our gifting, we're just expecting this neat, like you know, Amazon package on our doorstep, exactly what we sowed. And it's not like that. Fragments, that, that's breadcrumbs, 12 baskets full, but but breadcrumbs. In other words, when we put our loaves in Jesus' hands what we're doing is we are giving Him authority to return it to us in a different form. I wanna talk briefly about what it is to be a church that puts our resources in Jesus' hands for the sake of multiplication. Because we can think about it in terms of individuals, but this is a multiplying church much like ours, where you have recently sent the Neelys away. And that's like putting your bread in Jesus' hands. Oh Lord, Dylan and his family, they were so precious to us. Oh, but we're putting our bread in your hands. And now look what God is doing in Kansas City. But you are left for the moment feeling empty and hungry while other people are being filled. We've just been across at Kirkwood and I was there three years ago and it's grown. Why? It's grown because you were willing to put your bread in Jesus' hands. And I just wanna commend you, city congregation, you are the ones, you're the gift that's kept on giving. And some of you have more recently coming and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I just want you to know that you are joining a multiplying church that raises people up and sends them out that the bread of life would fill empty souls. And that is costly. And Jesus has compassion, but He will come again as He restores to you what you've sowed money leaders, worshipers, prayers, givers. He's able to restore, but our lives are never the same. As we so don't expect God ever to restore to you your neat little suburban church dream where you're all gonna be together all the time in one place. That dream is gone. You've got it back in fragments, if that's okay with you. And I'm not saying that with a lack of compassion. We have done the same thing again. And again, and again, in fact, the church we lead in the last 21 years has multiplied almost 20 times, 17 to be exact. And it's costly, but it's an amazing thing when you see what God does with the bread we placed in his hands. About three years ago, I sat in our TV lounge with my youngest son and his best friend, Isaiah. They were both 10 years old at that time. And they were having their Final sleepover, because Isaiah and his family were being sent the next week to plant a church in Thailand with 22 other Southlanders. And I sat there, we just planted three times in the last three years before, and I just found myself saying, enough already, Jesus. This is is too much. It's one thing for us to send our friends, but this is Levi's best friend. Isaiah had led Levi to a point of faith in Christ and baptism, and they were just amazing, amazing friends. And now he's having a final sleepover with his best friend. But we sent them off just feeling like that boy left empty and hungry. And now three years later, they're a church in Thailand and Renelle and I visited them in November last year. And we're up in this hill country with this people called the Red Lahu people and Isaiah, now 13 years old, is with us and his family and the church. And to cut a long story short, this church that's planted in Chiang Rai has been reaching into this unreached people group in the hills called the Red Lahu people. Four years ago, missionaries first came to preach the gospel to them and they didn't like what they said. They pushed them off a cliff and killed them. But God has opened in the last few years a door to the church we've planted with some other missionaries. And when we were there doing medical and dental missions and preaching the gospel, there was a lady who came, put her faith in Christ. She was the 20th Christian in the last few years to be baptised. And I just found myself going, as this beautiful old lady, she, she took off her bracelets and, 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 and demolished her household gods and said, now baptise me, please. There was no big pool of water. We had to pour a jug of water over her as she put her faith in Christ. And I just found myself going, this is costly, but it is so worth it if we had not been willing to say bye-bye to Isaiah and his family, this would not be happening. And I just want to encourage you, Jubilee City, to continue putting your bread in Jesus' hands for the feeding of the multitudes. And that applies to you as families, as individuals, and as a church. Finally, We can pray break me prayers because Jesus prayed the ultimate break me prayer. You know, this miracle is about 14 verses in John and for about 30 verses afterwards, Jesus is explaining that this miracle isn't a miracle, it's a sign. And the people just don't get it. And Jesus takes this long time. You can imagine these people sitting on the grass in groups of 50s and 100s, full stomachs. And Jesus is just saying, look, you have to understand this miracle is the sign. I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And he's saying, this bread that I've just given you to fill your stomachs, you're you're gonna hunger again with that bread. But if anyone eats of my flesh, he will live forever. I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then he goes on in verse 54 to say, in fact, if you will not eat of my flesh, you have no life in you. And you know, the crowds that flocked to him scattered that point. Why? Because they just wanted the bread for their stomachs. They didn't understand that the real bread was the bread for their souls. And there's this tragic moment where Jesus is left just with the 12 disciples. Way to grow a church, Jesus. Way to grow a church. Give them food for their stomachs. They flock to you. Say, no, no, actually the real bread that you hunger for is the bread of heaven that fills your souls and they scatter. And Jesus in a ministry crisis moment just says, are you also gonna leave me? I mean, it's, it's a tender moment. And Peter just gets it. You know, Peter often is the disciple that lives with his foot in his mouth, right? But but he gets it, and he just says the most beautiful thing. He says, Where else can we go, Lord? Only you have the words of eternal life. He got it. He got the fact that we hunger for created things. Because we are material emotional beings. And so we hunger for food. We hunger for friendship. We hunger for rest. And, and Jesus cares about filling our stomachs with these things, but, but Peter got that the true deepest gnawing hunger was not a hunger for created things, but for the uncreated one. Because you and I are made in the image of God, the uncreated one. And so there is a place in our life that cannot be satisfied by created things. It will only be satisfied by the uncreated one, Jesus Himself, the living bread. Do you realise that? That our hunger and our pursuit of created things that are legitimate will actually never ultimately satisfy us. For a moment, the new car, the new house, the new friendship, a cool new sushi place. They do satisfy for a moment, but they they, they leave us with a gnawing hunger. How can someone created in the image of an uncreated eternal God be completely satisfied by created, not eternal things? We will only be deeply satisfied by the uncreated God. As Augustine said, Almighty God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless, until they find their rest in you. Or our hearts are hungry, famished until they find their fill in you. You can pray the break me prayer because Jesus would pray the ultimate break me prayer on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That was the ultimate break-me prayer as His flesh was being broken like bread for our wholeness. He was broken for our wholeness. His His blood shed for our forgiveness. The ultimate break-me prayer was prayed on the cross to give us ultimate satisfaction. And that's why we can pray break-me prayers because we know the things, the material things that He's put in our hands, We might love them, but they won't ultimately satisfy us. And we have the bread of life satisfying us forever. So we hold on loosely to the material blessings that God blesses us with. Amen. Amen. So I want to encourage you, keep on praying dangerous prayers, trusting in the goodness of God and feeding on the bread of heaven. Amen. Let's pray.